Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast interviewing documentary filmmakers. I'm Tom Powers, the documentary programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival and artistic director of Doc NYC. On this episode, I talked to Kevin McDonald, the director of the documentary Whitney, about the life of Whitney Houston. She came from a musical family in Newark, New Jersey, where gospel traditions crossed over into pop. Whitney's mother, Sissy Houston, was a member of the Sweet Inspirations, who sang backup for Aretha Franklin, Elvis Presley, and many others. Sissy also recorded solo records, including the first version of Midnight Train to Georgia. Sissy's solo act never caught fire. Instead, she channeled her energy into her daughter's career. The film shows Whitney's first television appearance in Whitney was a hit maker, starting with her first album. But she also became a tabloid sensation, with headlines about her love life, drug abuse, and tumultuous marriage to singer Bobby Brown. It was a tragic spectacle that ended with her drug-related death in 2012 at age 48. Kevin describes his film as an attempt to take back her story from the sensationalized versions. Well, that was actually one of the things that appealed to me was the challenge of that, the challenge of taking something that people don't generally treat seriously and trying to, trying to treat it seriously, trying to sort of draw out some of the interesting, you know, political, sociological, racial themes that are inherent in her story. Kevin has spent over 20 years making films. He won an Oscar for his documentary One Day in September about terrorist acts at the 1972 Olympics. His other documentaries include The Mountain Adventure, Touching the Void, and a Bob Marley biography. He also directed the fiction film The Last King of Scotland that won Forrest Whitaker an Oscar for his portrayal of Idi Amin. Kevin is based in London. We met up in New York in June, a month after Whitney premiered at the Cannes Film Festival. I started by asking Kevin what Whitney Houston meant to him before this project. Well, I wasn't a huge fan. Um, I probably had an attitude typical of people of my uh, age and gender and education in Britain, which was kind of slightly maybe um, guilty pleasure, Whitney Houston would qualify as, but not somebody who I would ever probably tell my friends, oh, I love Whitney Houston. Um, And I guess in terms of her personal life, I was kind of 
bored to 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 dismissive of all the tabloid mm-hmm. um, kind of shenanigans and, and 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 speculations around her, and and I think I probably had very little sympathy for her because I it's hard to have sympathy for someone who you see from the outside um, destroying themselves like that, um, and so. I, I wasn't an obvious candidate to make a film about Whitney Houston, but maybe that also made me the perfect person to make it. I, I um, the, What led me to be interested in making the film was two things. One was meeting Whitney's uh, um, agent, a woman called Nicole David, who had been her film agent for like 30 years, her whole career. And who appears in the film. Who appears in the film. And she said to me, um, and I always actually tried to get her to say this again on camera, but she could never do it somehow. But she said to me, she made this extraordinary appeal when I met her at Sundance a couple of years ago. And she said, I really want you to make this film because I loved Whitney more than any other client I ever represented, but I never understood her. And I still to this day don't understand why she ended up the way she ended up. And I thought there was something so arresting about that invitation. You know, that here's somebody who was great, great friends with her, who, who knew her through thick and thin, but who felt like there was a mystery at the at the heart of her. And when Nicole was coming to you, is did she known you for a long time, or was it because of the Bob Marley documentary or something else? Um, I'd never met her before. Uh, she was um, already kind of attached as a consultant to the project by the producers, Simon Chin and Lisa Erspammer. Um, Lisa had been working on the idea of doing a film for n- a number of years already and, and um, had hooked up with Simon Chin, who's a very well-known British uh, uh, feature documentary maker. Did Man on Wire, Did Searching Man for Sugar Man. Searching for Sugar Man, exactly. And it was Simon who came to me initially, and I was like, no, I'm not really interested in Whitney. He said, well, just if you're in Sundance, this woman, Nicole Dave, is going to be there. Would you just meet with her and talk to her? So that was very convincing. I still wasn't absolutely convinced. And and then I, I came home to England and I thought, well, I'll listen to a bit of Whitney's music. And... I, I began to sort of be able to articulate for myself um, the extraordinary power of her voice and actually mm-hmm. the, the, and, and sort of isolate the, 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 the emotional impact that had on me. And then I read an article which serendipitously came out, I think, exactly that point in time, February or March in, uh, 2016, which was in The New Yorker about Whitney's rendition of the Star Spangled Banner. It was called uh, Whitney Houston Songs of Freedom by a journalist called Sankey Henderson, who appears briefly in the film. And he um, deconstructs that performance and explains why it is one of the great revolutionary performances um, in American music history. That performance changed the way people sang the Star Spangled Banner thereafter, but also uh, changed the way people understood it. Um, turned it from a song about oppression and military might into a song about freedom. And 
uh, I was fascinated by that, and I thought, wow, so this, there is this whole sociological significance to Whitney as well as the giant musical talent, and that was when I signed on. I mean, while we're talking about that Star Spangled uh, Banner rendition, do you think that Whitney Houston had the intentions that he describes uh, uh, to it? Yes, I think she did. I think, um, but of course, whether those intentions are kind of conscious ones or semi-conscious, semi-articulated ones, I think is un- is uncertain. I think that's what's so compelling about her as a figure to make a documentary about, but also frustrating is that she wasn't hugely articulate. She hated giving interviews. She hardly gave any good interviews in her whole life. She didn't write any diaries, any books, any... She didn't write even her own songs. The expression, the 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 the, the, the her voice is literally in her singing voice, mm. and so I've got to believe that when she sings that, and we all feel the things that we feel about it, and other singers from Lady Gaga to Beyonce have basically stood on her shoulders in their own performances of that of of of, of that song. I think you've got to believe that on some level she understood what she was what she was doing. She might not be able to ex- sit down here and explain it word for word to you, but I think she knew what she was up to. So uh, you have uh, tremendous access to uh, her family and uh, a lot of the people who were uh, close to her. What do you think was the feeling on their part, you know, their interest in participating in this kind of life story? Uh, I think for them it was very simple. They had decided after after Lisa and Simon, the producers, had talked to them a couple of times, they decided that this was a good idea to make a film and that the time was right for them. Um, they had their own self-interest, of course, as any estate would who's going to grant this kind of permission, this sort of access that they gave. And I think they felt quite wisely that there was no point in making another kind of puff piece about Whitney Houston, um, that actually they needed to authorize a filmmaker who could come in and and have freedom of expression using the material that they that they could provide and using access to them because that was the only way that the film was going to have any credibility and and also you've got to remember that Whitney's reputation has been so tarnished over the years that you know even if I'd wanted to do a a a, a kind of destruction job on her I, I wasn't going to be able to bring her any lower in a way so I think they 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 wisely thought you know, what we need is to humanize her. And to humanize her, we need to allow somebody in who's going to, you know, really dig deep and, and try and um, understand her. Mm-hmm. When when you were having those initial conversations with key people, was there something that you felt like they were looking for you to say or, or something that you felt like you should try to communicate to them? Um, I was very simple in just saying, look, I, I come at this with a with a an attitude that there's no point in making a film about an artist unless in some way you want to celebrate that artist, you want to celebrate their work. Um, But I want to be able to explore and go wherever the life story takes me. And uh, I'm very happy for you to see the cut at a couple of junctures and to comment on it. But you know, ultimately, it's got to be it's got to be my judgment as to what what's in the film. And they they went along that, and I think that is what they wanted to hear. I also talked about, I had a similar experience doing something about Bob Marley a few years ago, um, where the estate are similarly kind of, you know, have a similarly tough, tight control of, of things. And 
Actually, and that was a project that a couple other filmmakers had to try to approach and got spit out of uh, um, from th- those kinds of touchy family issues. Exactly. And 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 um, so when I approached them, my my attitude was the same. I said, look, I'm coming at it with a a, a very positive attitude towards his music and wanting to celebrate that. But uh, it, this has to be a human portrait. And that's what's, I guess, missing Whitney, missing from, in my estimation, and the things that had been done about Bob Marley before as well, was there wasn't, it was all about the kind of mythology and not about the, the humanity. Hmm. And um, uh, they understood that, and they, they were incredibly good partners, as, as were the Houston family, actually. And particularly with the Houston family, they, they, there's a lot of things that came up in the research of the film um, that are quite uncomfortable for them. And uh, you know they they squirmed a bit, but they they said okay, you know go ahead if you really want to you want to talk about that if you want to put that in, then then that's fine. And I think um, well I hope that the reception of the film um, will you know do just do justice to their bravery in in in, in agreeing to make it. Hmm. I want to ask you about a couple of the interviews. Uh, Sissy Houston, Whitney Houston's mother, uh, singer in her, uh, her own right. She's interviewed in the film. I want to start by just asking about the setup of that interview. She's been interviewed in a church, I believe. She's got a winter coat on. She almost has her back to you, kind of looking over her shoulder. She feels very guarded just in her stance and uh, and the way she looks and um, and I, I wonder if you can first describe just you know how you set that up visually. Well, that that interview is is um, unique amongst all the interviews in the film because it's everything else is done against a kind of neutral backdrop with a to camera kind of interview, and that one is the only one that's in a you know a kind of real physical location, and uh, the only one that isn't directly to camera, and the reason for that is because. You know, it's not some great strategic, um, artistic stroke of genius on my part that it's different. It's just that I did an interview with her like all the other interviews, but it was really just not a good interview. And mm. she was very forgetful and rambly. I don't think she was ever a great talker, but I think she's now very old and quite frail and her memory isn't the best. And so it just was not a good interview. And then I, th- I thought, well, I'm going to take her down to this church where we were going to film in the afternoon. And I thought, I'll just have her walk around and I wasn't going to have her talking at all and I sat her down so you know I had her walk in you designed this shot she walked in she sat down and she started talking Mm. about when she was in that church when Whitney was a child and how she had been the director of music and how she taught Whitney what she had taught Whitney and this is the New Hope Church this is the New Hope Baptist Church yeah in, in New York New Jersey and and um, and suddenly her mind was there, and she was totally focused. And I could feel this simultaneous this def- great defensiveness, which you're picking up on, um, this real feistiness, um, and uh, you simultaneously understand. Well, you know, here's a woman who you do not want to mess with, and that Whitney obviously would not have wanted to mess with. Um, but also this enormous sadness about talking about the past. She's just destroyed by the by, by what's happened to her in the last number of years with her daughter dying and then her granddaughter dying. Um, 
So it carries a great emotional weight for me, actually. So I guess there's something, you know, I guess you've got to believe in the film gods that somehow or other that was going to be the best way for her to be somehow different than everything else, different than all the other interviews in their in location and and, yeah. and style. And maybe that was meant, meant to be. Well, it's interesting to hear you describe that because the... The interview with her, it concentrates on Whitney's very early years. And when later in the film you're getting to much more troubled times, it made me wonder, you know, why you never got back to uh, to Sissy Houston in, in, yeah. in, descri- in, in addressing Well, just those. because, as I said, I, I, you know, I did an interview with her and it, it wasn't very interesting or very good. And I suppose that I did used to end the film with her actually back in the church. That used to be the end of the film. And I, that was there until quite near to the end. And then um, I found this other way, I suppose, of, of returning it to that church for the funeral, for Whitney's funeral and the sort of sense of homecoming for Whitney, which seemed more powerful and spoke, I think, what to me had developed into the main theme of, of, of her life and of the film, which is about... Um, yearning for times that are gone and past and can never be had again. In the film, you do some very heavy interviews with other uh, members of Whitney's family and, and circle, including her brothers. Um, you're digging up some stuff that hasn't been dug up before. And it made me think when I was watching it that, you you know, you're almost in a role of a therapist, like trying to, you know, teasing very traumatic uh, stories out of people. And and I wonder, you know, how you think about those sessions when, when you're going to some dark places. And also what's what you think has prepared you as an interviewer to, you know, to be able to, to guide a person through that kind of terrain. Well, I... It, it definitely felt like the film was a therapy session many times, making the film was. and, and But also it was this uh, investigation for me. It became a kind of psychological invest, investigative film. Um, I, I don't know, I don't know um, if I have any particular preparation other than just, um, you know, the curiosity that is built up in you when you're making a film for a year and you've had so many barriers put in your way of people not wanting to talk and that was one of these one of these films which I'm sure a lot of other documentary makers are familiar with of kind of people say oh yeah come into my life but actually they don't mean it they don't really want to let you in they want they think oh I can get away with giving you the same fluff I've been giving people for years and years and um, it, I was really just um, uh, uh, not uh, <laughs> I was quite determined not to be put off by that and uh, felt that there was something much deeper going on here. I had a sense from watching footage of Whitney as a child and footage of Whitney even as an adult where she felt so uncomfortable in her own skin that it just felt to me that there's something, there's some trauma in her and it's shared with her family. It's shared with her brothers. They've all, they've all um, uh, suffered from such terrible addiction problems their whole lives. The two, her two brothers still are struggling with that. And so a lot of the conversations I started to have with them and I, I interviewed them each four times, actually. Got to know them quite well. But a lot of the conversations I had were about their own issues and about their own lives. And I think it was through talking about that rather than just talking all the time about their mm-hmm. sister that, it, that, that that we began to get to these sort of bigger family issues, which in the end I think is what the film, what I think is most interesting about the film is that it's kind of a family 
portrait, a portrait of, of family dysfunction, maybe. Back to this, uh, this, this, this sort of the, the, the therapy aspect of it. On the last interview I did with one of the brothers, Gary, he said to me, you know, maybe we should do this again next month. This is like, this is like therapy. I'm enjoying this. Having started out, by the way, the first interview I did with him, he was very aggressive, didn't want to really be a part of it. But after the fourth time over several months, um, he, you know, we grew quite strangely close, actually. And I saw him last night, and there was a screening here, and he, he really feels that this opened up a lot of stuff for him. That, yeah. And he said to me, we should have talked about all of this a long time ago, and I don't know why we didn't. And so, you know, they may not, the family may not love everything in the film, but they actually do appreciate what, in a way, it's done for them in, on, a, on a deeper psychological level. Uh, one uh, person who's uh, not interviewed in the film is Robin Crawford, who was a longtime companion of uh, of Whitney Houston, was a kind of key part of her support infrastructure, every indication that they had a romantic relationship for, uh, for a period. Uh, can you talk about your efforts to get her to participate in, in what you heard from her? Yeah, obviously she was she was you know, a key person in a way for me to try and get in the film. And I failed in that, unfortunately. Uh, she was um, uh, Whitney's friend when they were still at high school. And that friendship developed into, for some for a period of time, into a romantic sexual relationship. They lived together in New Jersey. Um, uh, and I think from what I can gather, their relationship um Sort of their, their 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 romantic relationship stopped. I think in, around the time that Whitney became very successful, and they remained great, great, great friends. And um, uh, there were still lots of rumors throughout Whitney's career floating around. She's gay, you know. She, she's you know, Arista Records just you know don't want to admit that, and she has to be seen with a man, and she's only married Bobby Brown for the image and all these sort of things, which I don't think is true. I just think. You know, she was fluid in some sense in her sexuality, and, and in a way that today would be a totally unremarkable. But back then, was people couldn't quite comprehend. You were either gay or you were straight. And what's going on here? Um, well, it also Robin, seemed to be a tough thing for her to deal with inside her very religious family. Uh, you know, when you bring it up with her uh, brother Gary in the film, he has like a very intensely negative reaction to just the name Robin Crawford. Yeah. No, he he really does. And um, uh, it it's probably more, well, it's definitely more damning of him, I think, in most, most of the audiences are highest than it is of, than it is of Robin Crawford. But I left that in there because I felt like it's valuable for the audience to get a sense of what the feeling in the family about homosexuality is. And, uh, and he describes it as evil. He absolutely, yeah. He's really he's really fierce about it, and I think you can see there's a kind of religious um, uh, foundation to his to those feelings. Um, and by the way, I think in that community, it's probably not that uncommon for people to to still hold those kinds of views. Um, and so, yeah, Whitney Whitney um, uh, would have been seen as you know sinning. As doing something really bad when she was she was having this relationship with, with Robin, but I n have no indication that she stopped the relationship because you know she, the pressure from her family, the pressure from whatever. I think it came to an end. They remained great friends. She fell in love with other men 
and then particularly with Bobby Brown, um, I think to imagine that she stayed with him through thick and thin for 16 years and didn't love him is kind of a bit far, bit far fetched. Mm. Um, but Robin, Robin was a, was was somebody I contacted very early on. We emailed back and forth. I tried to persuade her to do it. She's never spoken publicly about about Whitney at all. And uh, after several months of trying, she definitively declined. And that was a, that was. Uh, uh, a, a, a difficult thing for me but I don't think I obviously spoke to you, so ha, many has she seen people. the film do you know or? no she hasn't yet I've offered to show it to her um, she uh, I, I, I did get a I did get a pretty clear sense from talking to lots of people who who, who knew them both so well uh, of you know what their relationship was what, what she was like what part she played in Whitney's life and obviously there's a lot of archive of her in the film um so I think her side of the story is represented fairly, I believe, um, and accurately, but without her voice in the present tense, which is a real shame. Hmm. Um, so how would you you know, compare the making of this film to the Bob Marley film or any other film that, uh, that you've worked on? Well, in some ways it was, it was the hardest because, as I said earlier, I went in with some kind of uh, slightly negative feelings about Whitney, and it took a long time for me to sort of come out the other end and to feel real compassion for her. And um, and now I do feel I feel you know admiration, great admiration for what she achieved and for her and for her the the brilliance of her of her music and her voice. Um, and I feel such enormous sadness and pity for her in in in. in I don't think she ever stood a chance in this family that she grew up in with all the circumstances that were swirling around her combined with her own kind of really unsuitability because of her vulnerability to being in this enormously high-pressure situation. Um, so, so, but it was, it was a, a, for many, <laughs> for long stretches of the edit, I was, I was just feeling, oh, God, I, I can't get inside this person. She's not giving me anything. She was so elusive, mm. and that both is, was enormously frustrating, but also as a spur, obviously, it makes you feel like I, I have to try and find a way to crack this. I have to try and find a way to 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 get inside her. Well, one thing that I uh, think helps do that is an extraordinary amount of uh, like home movie video that uh, that you have. Um, some of it, you know, very candid. We see her dissing other singers with her mom at some point. Uh, in fact, her, her mom even kind of remonstrates her a little bit, as if like that's not a you know polite thing to be saying, uh, even to a home uh, movie camera. Can you talk about like where that footage came from and uh, and and how you processed it? Yeah, we. Um we started gathering the home movie footage really as we were interviewing people. So the process of making this film was, uh, for me, quite unusual because I, I, I decided that it was all going to be about talk, talking to people, interviewing people. I didn't do any pre-interviews. I would just phone everybody up and say, can I do an interview with you? I would talk to them for literally three minutes and then sit them down in front of a camera and our relationship fully took place in front of the camera. And so I interviewed a lot more people than I ended up using in in the film. And and um, so all those 75 people I think I interviewed, they I asked them all, you know, what have you got in terms of photos? What have you got in terms of video? And 
stuff started to come out of the out of the woodwork. So there was you know material from one of her drummers. There was material from her A and R guy, from her um, her hair person um, who had taken video actually from like 1988 to 2008. Amazing amount of stuff she had. Wow. Um, and then we found a trove of outtakes from a documentary that Whitney had sort of had made about herself in the big I think it was an ABC TV special from 1990 or 91 and there were all these outtakes including bits of home movies shot by Robin Crawford of Whitney and you know in in her room in in her, in her dressing room you know on the street um, so that was really the great find uh, locating that material and then well actually since you brought that up it did make me wonder because some of that footage uh, is clearly taken by Robin Crawford but I take it from what you just said you weren't getting that from Robin Crawford no I didn't get it that was, from her it, it, that it was belonged, sitting in a different archive it belonged in, in it belonged to the to Whitney's company Nippy Inc and so on her death had uh, uh, had reverted to the estate and was sitting in a storage facility somewhere and uh but this, the, the, the Houston family's archive is pretty um, chaotic, if that's not impolite. And um, it took a long time for us to... We didn't get hold of that until very, very late on in the process, actually. Um, and uh, when we did, it was all on one inches, you know, all this original film footage and, and, and high 8 footage, which is the home video at that period, had been transferred onto one-inch tapes. And so very you know a week or two before we finished cutting we found all this material which we had previously had some of on vhs and various other sort of formats we know so there was a huge archive job we had a great archive researcher who also worked with me on the bob marley film called sam dwyer who sort of specializes in 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 music archive well, he, he sounds like an undersun she uh, or she oh, uh, <laughs> she sounds like an undersun uh hero of uh, of these projects oh totally i mean anyone who's done sort of archive based uh films will know that you know that is a vast amount of work and they have their networks you know yes. underground networks of contacts <laughs> to people and they, you know she was always coming up with oh, i found this little thing which nobody's seen before i found this thing. you know so but it takes a lot of time and and uh uh, uh a lot of a lot of energy. Now, when you listen to Whitney Houston, uh, you know what are what's your go-to song? <laughs> well, I think the song I changed my mind a lot during the course of making the film, and, and in fact, I did have this idea um, right at the beginning of making the film. I thought I'm going to I'm not going to use any of the music of Whitney's songs. I'm only going to use her voice because I managed Sony have all the isolated tracks of just her vocals, and I thought that would be a great concept because. You know, it's about stripping away everything around her, stripping away some of the some of the some of the instrumentation that sounds kind of a bit cheesy and period now, but and reducing it down to just that voice, which is the source of all the strength and the emotion of the music. But in the end, I only did that on one on one track. Um, on I want to dance with somebody, which you know, the first half of it we do kind of a cappella. Um, but I think that I think the song yeah, the song that that now means the most to me, I think, is. Is I have nothing, which is uh, a song which we found a great, you know, uh, pretty much unknown uh, live performance of that from the early '90s, which we use as the end credit music and end credit video. And when um, you hear that song um, at the, after having all of this discussion and many people's opinions and points of view on Whitney and you get to the end of the film and it just feels like she is talking for herself at the end it's a, and, the, and the key line in that is take me for what I am 
And that seems like, you know, a great message from her to the audience. I want to thank Kevin McDonald for speaking with me. His new film, Whitney, is now playing in theaters, released by Roadside Attractions. This interview was recorded at the School of Visual Arts in the MFA Social Documentary Department. Thanks to our team, series producer Sarah Modo, sound recordist Eric Spink, sound mixer Tom Micah, and web designer Cross Strategy. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, and our executive producer is Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at THOM Powers. I invite you to listen to our short-form podcast, Documentary of the Week from WNYC. You'll find over 160 documentary recommendations. Pure Nonfiction is distributed by the TIFF Podcast Network. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.